Hi there, I'm Guy Kilty, and this is the Creative Forces Podcast, conversations with creative individuals. This episode's Creative Force is the author, editor, publisher, and teacher, Nicholas Royal. Nick's the author of seven novels, two novellas, three volumes of short fiction, and he's edited 20 anthologies of short stories. He's also a senior lecturer in creative writing at the Manchester Writing School. He's head judge of the Manchester Fiction Prize, and he's an editor for Salt Publishing, and he runs Nightjar Press. I first met Nick about 10 years ago through playing five-a-side football, and we've kept in touch since. And during our interview, which we did in his flat, surrounded by his colour-coordinated collections of paperbacks, he told me where he gets his ideas from, why he's fascinated by first novels, and why he writes in a very particular place. So it feels like the the best place to start yeah. is to ask you about this amazing collection, or two collections, I yeah. should say, of books yeah. that we're sitting in amongst. Yes. Just just tell me about these two, okay. or these, these books that we've got here. Okay, we've got, as you say, two collections here. A penguin collection, which is broken down into regular penguins, which are very familiar with their orange spines, and green-spined penguin crime books they're all from the 50s 60s and 70s i don't think anything later than the 70s and um i often ask myself why that is and i I guess it's partly because of my age and when i grew up and when i started reading um books like this how old are you now i'm 54 i was born in 1963 um but it's also there's also a particular look to them. I mean, the, the orange spines, obviously, that's, that's a, there's a degree of regularity um, and uniformity. But even, even once you've accepted that they're all orange, that, you know, there's, there's fading. Uh, so this Susan Hill here is that, that's out of the main collection. It's up on top of some books there. Partly that's because, well, it's partly because there's no room for it, for her to be slotted in with the other Susan Hills, but partly it's because it's faded to such a, a sort of pale yellow that I'm, I'm, I've got my, I'm, not, I'm on the lookout for a replacement copy of that particular book. Um, I, what I like, you see, when you look at them, you can see that there are all these different ways uh, of... Um, different ways in which the lettering is rendered on the spine. And I, the ones I like in particular are where you've got an, a black uh, author name and white title. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I won't be happy until that entire collection is uh, composed purely of penguins that have a, an orange spine, black author name and white title. How many are in this collection then? In the the penguin, the orange penguins. In the orange, I don't know. I mean, it'd be easy Roughly. to work out because of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight uh, shelves, and there's probably forty or fifty books on each shelf by the look of it. Um, and obviously, there are many, many more penguins than there are on on that bookshelf. Yeah. That um, partly that's exciting. I could carry on collecting them. Um, but as you can see, I'm, I'm, you know, my main restriction, well, two restrictions, one is money and one is space. Um, and so I've, I've kind of reached a position where I'm happy to 
limit the penguin collection to that particular bookcase. Okay. And the green penguin collection to this bookcase, which is half the size, well, less than yeah. half the size. So we've got about 200 of the orange, or, the, or thereabouts, thereabouts of, yeah, of the yeah. orange penguins, about yeah. 100, say, of the green penguins. Yeah. yeah. All uh, there's a there's a visual appeal to yeah. this, isn't there? There's yeah. very much a a uniformity. Yes, and there's it, even more of the picadors. Yes, the white spine picadors the white behind spine us. White spine picadors. There's about seven hundred, seven hundred and fifty of those. Uh, now they've spilled over into uh, another room there, and unfortunately, they've now spilled beyond the amount of shelving that there is. So there's some. Um, stacked on the end, uh, beginning to stack up against the wall beyond the bookcase. Um, if you can see where the, the skull is there. Yep. Um, what skull is that, by the way? A peccary type of pig. Um, I might come back to that. Okay. <laughs> so they're, they're climbing the wall um, behind there, and they've reached the point where they, they can climb no higher because they start to come away from the wall quite alarmingly, and I don't want them all to fall down. You don't want them. I don't want them because then they get damaged and you've got to pick them up and all the rest of it. So as I say, there's about 700 or 750 of those white-spined picadors and they um, date from 1973, uh, which is when picador started. In I think it was October or, or autumn anyway, 1973. So that's, a you know, I was 10. I wasn't reading picadors. Um, but um, I think, well, I know exactly when I started reading them. Uh, the first book, the first Picador that I got is on that shelf down there, and it's quite a thick book. It's called Black Water, um, which was an anthology of fantastic literature edited by Alberto Manguel. I was given it for Christmas by my parents, and uh, the collection's built from there, really. Uh, but it ends around about 1999-2000, when Picador stopped doing The White Spine, um, and along the way, so between 73 and, and 2000, 99% of the books that they published looked exactly like that. Well, I say exactly. There are minor variations in the uh, typography, but I, I don't worry about that. <laughs> That's fine. Um, but what I do, I would exclude from that main collection any where they do something further, like sometimes they put a little picture on the spine or they have a picture cover that wraps around the spine. So those are in a separate collection. Um, there's, there are many fewer of those. There is something about the power of, of, of the visual power of that collection altogether, the, the uniformity of it or the near uniformity of it, which I find attractive. Um, but if anybody ever says, oh yeah, Nicholas Royal, he shelves his books by colour, I'm not going to say I get annoyed, but they're not they're not right, really. Uh, yes, if you look at this collection here, it would appear that I'm shelving books by colour, but of course I'm shelving books by imprint, by you know, Penguin and Picador. And uh, I've got lots of other white-spined books, but I wouldn't put them in with the, uh, with the Picadors. I've started collecting other white-spined books from other imprints, like Paladin and Scepter and King Penguin, but they're all in separate collections. And they're smaller than the Picadors. So, the, the collection is smaller. So what is it, do you think, about the uniformity? When you look at these, 
you know, it's clearly a, a visual yeah. uniformity. And you yeah. notice they're in alphabetical of order as well, yes. of course. <laughs> so what is it that appeals to you, do you think? Why, why are you drawn to this sort of displaying this uniformity? Well... Or collecting the uniformity? Yeah, I've, I've asked myself the same question, and I think I know the answer. And it's that I like things that are the same but different. So, and I trace that back to um, when I was a child and, and I was I collected stamps. I was never a very serious stamp collector, but my I had a collection. Maybe I, maybe it started. Um, I don't know how it started, but I know that my dad, who was a customs officer, would bring stamps. He would get stamps from ships. He would rummage ships, as he called it, or as the customs called it. So basically looking for drugs and contraband and so on. And for some reason, he would often come home with stamps. And he would give those to me or my sister, one of my sisters, and they would go into our collections. And for some reason, the stamps that I liked best were what are called definitive stamps, which means, like, in, in Royal Mail, for example, those are the ones that just have the Queen's head on in profile. So they look the same, but they have different colours for the different values. There's something about that that I like. The fact that they're all the same, but different. Um, and the ones that I liked the best, I quite liked the Indian ones, but the ones I liked best were the Belgian ones. And I think well, it was partly the colours. They were they were just very attractive, pale colours. Uh, there was a pale green, a pale blue, a pale pink, and even a pale brown. They made brown look attractive. Um, so it was the fact that these were the same, but different, um, and also there's something, I mean, this is, this is going on to another matter, but I was fascinated by the idea of Belgium because it was this country like ours, a monarchy, just the other side of the channel, um, that had a king rather than a queen. So it had a king on its stamps where, where we had a queen on ours. And I thought how strange that must be to, to live in a country like ours, but with a <laughs> king, <laughs> So that doesn't really answer the the question about why why the uniformity, but the 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 this fact of things looking the same but different, I and, really really like. And you think that that is traced back almost to that time when you were given those that stamp collection, and you really enjoyed and engaged with that. And yes, that's, that's carried through. I think so, and I think also, and I've only just made this connection for some reason while we're talking, and I think you've made me make it. It's something to do also with the fact that. Um, uh, can I go and get something? That yeah, please do. Illustrate. Okay, what I've got here is a photograph of my dad, um, a trick photograph. Um, so there's two images of him in the photograph, um, and he used uh, basically a multiple exposure. So, not for what year would that have been taken? That would probably have been around about 1968, uh, when I would have been five. And your dad would have been how old there? He was born in 30, 1930, so he'd be 38. So around about, he'd be mid to late 30s in that photo. Um, now, I can remember him setting up his camera equipment. With, he had uh, lights on tripods and so on, and he would set all this stuff up in the house. And he would set up a little dark room in a downstairs bathroom, this was in the house where we lived in Whitley Bay near Newcastle. And I can remember, so I can remember all of that, the equipment and doing photographs, taking pictures of me and, and, and my sisters. 
and I can remember him developing pictures. Um, so this is one that he developed. This is not the actual copy. This is one I've had printed since. Um, but what I could never get my head around was how there could be two images of him in the same picture. Mm. Um, cause I was only five. It didn't make any sense to me, this idea of, uh, multiple exposure. I don't know if he explained it to me or if he said it's magic. I can't remember. But to me, it seemed like magic. So there we have two things in that photograph that are the same. Well, they're the same. And he's, but he's got two very different expressions and he's looking yeah. a different way, isn't he? In, in yes. the two images. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's basically looking at himself. Um, and in one, he's smiling more broadly than in the other. Mm. So you would think looking at that picture, oh, there's um, a, a set of identical twins. Mm. Um, my dad did have two brothers, but um, he didn't have a twin. Um, but I was just so um, entranced or enchanted by that picture. Um, and so maybe that ties into this. This and I know that, that I've, I've already, in my mind, credited that picture with my interest in um, dummies, and uh, not dummies, um, dub- doubles, oh, yeah. doppelgangers. Yeah. Very, very interested in that. Um, uh, but maybe it also ties into this love of things that are the same but different and uniformity. Are there other examples that you've, you've got the... The, the stamps, the books. Yeah. Are there any other examples from your life that you've done the same thing? Um, collecting. Yeah. We, um, yeah, there's an awful lot. <laughs> I used to collect, you know, if you buy a loaf of bread from the supermarket and it comes in a plastic bag, basically, and around the neck there'd be a little sticky yellow mm. tie. Mm. Um, I used to collect those. <laughs> were they all the same colour? They were all yellow. Right. Um and I would stick them on the inside of uh, cupboard doors in the kitchen. Um, and when I moved house, I would leave them. But when I moved, and obviously whoever was moving in would think, what are all these? <laughs> and they'd have to get rid of them. Um, but then when I moved, I, I would start a new collection. And they would, it seemed to me like a way of um, not crossing off the days like a prisoner in a cell might on the wall with, you know, a piece of stone or something, but um, some a way of somehow marking time. Uh, anyway, I don't do that anymore because uh, I buy different bread now that doesn't come <laughs> pre-packed. <laughs> but probably if I was still buying the old loaves, uh, I'd probably still do that. Although it's kind of messy. and I, don't, I never really liked the messiness of it, and nor did I like the fact that over time, some of these things would fall off because they, they'd lose their adhesiveness. Mm. They'd fall off and then you'd have to put them back, but they'd fall off again. And that was annoying. Um, so in a way, I'm glad to have left that behind. Maybe that's one of the reasons why I've stopped doing that. <laughs> Do you think this, you've obviously got a, yeah, a, something that you've done before, yeah. something that you're doing now with yeah. the books and, yeah. and obviously tracing back a long way to that picture of your dad. Yeah. Do you think that that sort of love of uniformity mm. or uh, appreciation of it, let's say, yeah. does that translate at all into the way that you write? Hmm. Good question. And uh, no one's ever asked me that question. And <laughs> I don't know. Uh, possibly. In, I mean, I'm, I don't know. This is off the top of my head, but... Uh, I seem to go through phases where I will write 
stories that are similar to each other that might contain some of the same motifs and ideas that I keep coming back to. And I notice this uh, most obviously when I'm choosing stories to put together in a collection. And I think, oh, well, I, I, I can't have both those stories in the same collection because they're too similar. Uh, and up to the point where, um, you know, it'll be not an important plot point, but it'll be an important detail in the story. And then I'll realise that I've done it in two stories um, because, I suppose, because, I, I mean, when I write, I'm always writing about things that I'm fascinated by. And um, by definition, if something fascinates me, it, I, I don't forget about it once I've written one story about it. So I keep coming back to it. Um, I suppose I'm trying to... I don't know if this is the case, but maybe I'm trying to work stuff out. Maybe I'm trying to come up with answers to questions and, mm. and maybe it takes more than two or three goes to get an answer to it. And maybe I never do get the answer. But so at the moment I'm, I'm writing stories. Well, over the last few years, I've been writing stories set in this flat um, with the views from the windows in this flat of the other flats and looking into other people's flats and so on. And, and, um, there's been a fair amount of that and I'd, so it's kind of reached the point now where I realise I've done enough of that and it's time to move on but but I do I do like the fact that well it's not that I like it it's I recognise the fact that I do that that um, I write about my surroundings so if I live in Manchester which I have been doing now since 2003 um Almost all the stories that I write will be set in Manchester. I, I can't understand these people who set stories in places they've never been to. <laughs> um, I mean, in, in some cases, it's inevitable. You know, if you're writing science fiction and you're writing stuff set on other planets, then, you know, they've never been to the other planets, but why shouldn't you write those stories? Why shouldn't you pre imagine that you can go to those places? That's fine. But I like to write... Um, I like to explore where I am, basically. Have you always done that in your books then? Yeah, I think so. So when I was living in London between the early 80s and 2003, um, I would write, almost always I'd be writing about London. So I became known then as a London writer. And then I left London and, and came to Manchester, came back to Manchester and um, started writing about Manchester. And... Do you tell when you, you teach creative writing? Yeah. Is that something that you tell your students to do to no. write about what they know, or is no. that you leave that to the, very much to them about what Absolutely. they want to write about? It's completely down to them. Um, my colleagues and I will tell them um, this is what we do, mm. um, and, and I'm not saying that my colleagues all uh, they all write in the same way that I do. They don't. We all write differently. We all have different approaches to writing, but. Um, at the Manchester Writing School, it's all about encouraging students to write what they want to write in the way that they want to write it. And we can encourage them if they're doing it well or doing doing things right. And if then if there's something they're not doing right, then obviously it's about telling them they're not they're getting something wrong and how to do it better. But um, I mean, I can I can imagine a situation in which I might say to a student, "This isn't really convincing." Um, and I wonder if that's because you've never been to China. Um, 
where you know where do you live where do you spend time what do you do have you thought about writing about uh something closer to your actual experience um so in some cases it might be necessary to encourage the writer to uh, to think about uh, that idea of write what you know but just because it works for me doesn't necessarily mean it would work for yeah. another person is the most important thing I'm putting words in your mouth a bit here, so correct me. But mm. in terms of writing and wanting to write, for, so for a lot of the students will come to you wanting to write a book. Yeah, is it to write what you are, write about what excites you or what you're most interested in? Is that is that right, or is, what do you tell them in terms of for in taking taking that first step? Yeah, what should they write about? Well, we ask them what they're writing or what they want to write about. So if somebody applies to do the MA, we interview them and one of the questions we ask them, well, one of the questions I ask them and I presume my colleagues do the same, but when it's not like we're told you've got to ask them this particular set of questions, is if you come on the course, what will you be writing? And many people don't know at that stage. So let's say now first day of term and we're sitting in a room with a workshop group, we'll go around the room and we'll say, what are you writing? What do you want to write? Um, so it's not about you've got to write this, you've got to write that. We ask them what they want to write. And usually when people start the course, they have an idea. I want to do this. I want to do this. Um, it's, our, I mean, you know, I would regard it then as my job to to listen to what they say and think, okay, so it's a question of helping this person write that book as well as they can, really. And in terms of people's being able to see through writing a novel or being able to actually, mm. is it vital that they are writing about what excites them and what, you know, yeah. is what are the things that they are interested in? It's vital for me um, as a writer. I can't imagine um, writing a whole book about something I'm not interested in. I'm, I'm, I wouldn't be able to do it, I don't think. Um, lots of writers do um, because they will take commissions. Um, uh, so someone will say to them, I want, for example a novelization of this film script and you've got a month to do it. And I have a friend who, who does this and I'm in awe of his ability to do it. I just don't think I'd be able to do it. Why not? Because I find it hard enough sitting at my desk, concentrating and writing for half an hour on my own stuff, on stuff that fascinates me and that I'm really, really interested in. The idea of, of doing that eight hours a day on something that I'd not particularly interested in I just don't think I'd be able to do it um, but then that's his job um, that's his main source of income well it's not his main it's one of his sources of income um, obviously writing is also a source of income for me but it's not it's I don't have to make commercial decisions about what I write I suppose that's key um, I write what I'm interested in and then I try to sell it. And if I sell it, that's great. Um, but I don't, I certainly don't look at the market and think, what does the market want? I'll write that. I don't do that. Um, I wouldn't be interested in that approach. I don't think I'd be any good at that approach. Um, so for me, it's just a question of writing what interests me. And then it's really exciting if you find it interests other people. That's great. That that sort of connection with, with readers. 
And is, so that's the way you would approach it. You create something, you write something that interests you and then yeah. put it out there and yeah. hope. Yes. Or, or not necessarily hope, but yeah, I mean, you would, it would be great yeah. if other people like it too. Yeah. And it is great. It feels brilliant. When you write something, it's published, someone reads it and they respond. You know, you get some form of feedback, whether it's a review. I don't understand writers who say, oh, I never read my reviews. I always read my <laughs> reviews. I try to forget the bad ones and remember the good ones. Um, uh, that's not strictly true. Are there any bad ones that stick in the mind? Well, yeah, there are. And, and some bad ones are good in the sense that they tell you something that you're doing wrong and you can learn from them. Other bad ones, it's clear the writer has some kind of agenda uh, and resents the time taken to read this book and review it. Um, and they're going to let you know that and let the readers know that. Because, it's of course, bad reviews are very entertaining to read mm. for the neutral. Um, yeah, I've had some bad reviews, but I always, not always, I have occasionally uh, taken great delight in then hitting back somehow. Uh, so not writing to the letters page of the newspaper and saying, how dare you uh, publish this bad review. But... You know, so I, there was a bad review of one of my books, a book called The Matter of the Heart. Uh, and I, so I constructed a little scene in the next novel um, as a way of getting back at the writer of that bad review. And that was enormously satisfying and enjoyable for me. I don't know if he ever saw it, but I really hope he did. Can you ex expand on that? What, <laughs> what, what, what bit are you talking about? Well, what happened in the, this bit that you did? The, um, it would involve foul language. So okay. I don't. I don't. That's want... okay. We, foul language is okay. Really? Yeah. Four-letter words beginning with C. Okay. <laughs> we get the picture. We don't okay. need to. You get the picture. <laughs> I'll just say that um, the there was this review in the Times of my 1997 novel, The Matter of the Heart, by somebody called Harry Ritchie. Um, now, anyone who knows me will think, "Oh, there he goes again about Harry Ritchie." <laughs> hasn't let go of him all these years later 20 year 21 years ago now oh dear uh anyway it was a really nasty review it was personal it referred to that specky guy in the dust jacket photo that's me um he clearly thought i've got better things to do than be reading this book never mind have to spend a couple of hours writing a review of it and um so in the next book which was called the director's cut i named one of my characters Harry and he was a major character but Harry was a good name for him uh, and I named another character who was a minor character Richie um, so that I could have a scene in which Harry and another character have a meeting with Richie and then they come out and the meeting with Richie didn't go well um, and then they come out and the Harry and his friend have a conversation have a bit of dialogue where one of them says to the other, oh, that, that was awful, wasn't it? And, and the other says, Harry, Richie's, uh, you know, and we've got our four-letter word. There it is. And I, I showed, I, at the time I was working for Time Out magazine, and I showed this to the lawyer um, who came in once a week to read uh, pages. I said, Arthur, would you look at this for me, please, as a favour? And he said, yes, he was a very nice chap. Uh, Liverpool fan, I remember. Arthur Davidson. And um, he... And I said to him, look, I'm being very clever because it's got a comma. It needs a comma. Mm. Grammatically, it needs a comma after Harry. Um, Harry, comma, Richie's, etc. Um, 
aren't I clever? And he said, uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, I'm, not, I'm not bothered about the comma. Uh, and it's fine anyway, because it's abuse. And abuse is perfectly fine. <laughs> you can be as abusive as you like. Uh, as long as you're not saying Harry Rich is no good at his job, yeah, uh, then it doesn't matter. You can hurl abuse all you yeah. like in your books. Yeah, yeah. but uh, nevertheless, you know, it would have been too easy to just call, you know, use as a chapter title or something, Harry Rich's whatever. Um, so I, I thought if I, if I can go to some trouble to set something up where, whereby I managed to get back at him, um, and probably if I met him now, I'd, uh, we'd have a, uh, you know, well, I don't know. Would we have a laugh about it? I have no idea. Because <laughs> it caused me some pain at the time because mm. it was so unpleasant. Uh, and I haven't had one of those for ages, actually, which is nice. But my namesake got one that wasn't very nice. Um, Let's just stop there because I was going to ask you about this yeah. later, but that's we can talk about that. Now, you actually have a, another, there's another author called Nicholas Royal, isn't yes. there? Yes. Which is interesting when you were talking about doppelganger. Yes, it's, it's, isn't it? It's not a doppelganger because doppelganger, they look the same, don't yeah. they? But yeah. is there a word for some people with the same name? Um, there should be. There should be. Maybe, we, yeah. Well, um, I'll look that up afterwards. Yeah. So, yeah, go on. So he got... He got a bad review yeah. for his... You know him as well, don't I you? I know him. We're good friends. Yes. Did you know him... Is his is his real is it his real name Nicholas Royal as well? Yes, right. So neither of you have changed your no. name or anything like that. <laughs> no. How does that is that okay to have two That's authors fine. the same yeah. name? Right, okay. it's not like actors and equity. You don't have to come up with a new name. Did you meet each other because you were authors with the same name? Yes. Okay. How uh, did you meet? We met um, in I think uh, nineteen ninety seven or around that time. But some years earlier, we had both. Um, submitted short stories to the same magazine and they'd all been rejected but all sent back to Nick uh, even though my return address was on my stories. So they assumed they were all from the... Yeah. Yes, and maybe that this author had moved address right. in the yeah. meantime. <laughs> so they all went back to Nick and so Nick then wrote to me and, uh, and sent me my stories and uh, so we then were in correspondence and... Um, at this stage, he wrote non-fiction and I wrote fiction. So it was very easy. Well, you would have thought. Well, yeah, obviously he'd written some fiction because he'd written these stories. So he'd had one or two short stories published. But it was easy to distinguish between us. Um, and then we met in 97, I think, when he wrote a, a paper. So he was an academic. I wasn't an academic at the time. Um, I would... Many people would still say I'm not an academic now, <laughs> but I work in academia. Um, he wrote a paper about this business of there being two writers with the same name and him being one of them. And he was giving it at... He didn't work at London University. At the time, I think he worked at the University of Stirling. But he was giving a paper at London University, which is where I went as a student, but to a different college. Anyway, he said it would be a good idea if you'd turn up to the giving of this paper and we don't tell the students who are there when I read the paper that you're in the room um, and then at the end when, I, when I've read it um, I'll introduce you and you come along and we shake hands and so that's what we did um, <laughs> so at the point where I turn up uh, where, where, I, where he introduces me and I, and I stand up and say yes and we go and shake hands or something the students are all their you know their <laughs> mouths hit the table and and because I think they had all been thinking no this is just a very clever mm. 
way. He's pretending there's another writer with the same name. Um, uh, although, I mean, at that point, I'd, I'd published a number of novels. So it was just distantly possible that some of them had heard of me hmm. and knew that there were two of us. Um, but unlikely. And um, so since then, we became friends. Uh, we have become friends. And... Uh, and he is, we are both very, very interested in the uncanny and Freud and in Freud's theory of the uncanny and in... Um, what is that, just well, to, that, in, that in a nutshell? Well, that includes things like doppelgangers and um, that that's one of the key uh, elements of uh, Freud's theory of the uncanny or Freud's essay on the uncanny. He's very interested in doppelgangers. So basically, it's the that idea. There are, yeah, sorry, go on. The idea that the, there are things that that are familiar but strange. Um, so if you've got, like this picture of my dad, um, the two images of, of him within the same photograph, each is familiar. I don't know, it's difficult to talk about because it, it starts to. Um, it's. For, <laughs> each image it's not exactly the same because as we said before he's got different expressions on hmm. but um uh there's something about well something about me and nick um we are there are similarities between us but we're also completely different people hmm. we do the same thing we write the same sort of stuff kind of we have the same name but we're completely different people um, I'm not really expressing it very clearly. Maybe we'll come round and, and I'll express it more clearly later. Uh, and now I've lost my thread. <laughs> <laughs> I've lost it as well. Let's not worry too much about it. Okay. I think we were talking about, yeah, the fact that there is another Nicholas Royal. Yes. But yeah, is it right as well? Just one thing before yes. I forget, actually. Did you incorporate him into one of your books somehow? Yes. 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 I read that. What, how did you do that? Well, I did that by just having a, a filmmaker... Um, uh, who knew that there was another filmmaker with his name. And so, um, I mean, the filmmaker in, in the book, in Director's Cut, is uh, an unstable, disturbed individual. And so he regards this existence of this other filmmaker as a motive for murder. Um, whereas in, you know, I don't think that I need to kill Nick. I don't think Nick, feels that he needs to kill me it's been something that we have each written about and talked about and we do events together um and he so i i didn't put him in one of my books but i put two people in the same area same creative endeavor hmm. with the same name in one of my books whereas he has actually put me in his latest book which is called an english guide to bird watching which is a novel i said earlier that nick wrote non-fiction and i wrote fiction in 20, I don't know if it's 2011 or 2013, um, he, or even, I don't know, a few years ago, he muddied the waters by publishing his first novel. Moved onto your turf. Yes, he did. <laughs> um, now, he'd already been doing short stories, and I'd been encouraging him in that in a very uh, concrete way by commissioning one or two stories off him. I published a story by him in a book called Neon Lit Time Out Book of New Writing, Volume 2, I think. Um so I'd been encouraging him, so maybe I'm partly responsible. But anyway, then he wrote a novel called Quilt. Uh, so occasionally 
students will start the MA at Manchester Met and they'll say, oh, I, I bought your novel. I say, which one? They say, Quilt. <laughs> I say, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good book, but it's not mine. And, um, Are they shocked? Yeah. <laughs> or they'll say, oh, I bought An English Guide to Birdwatching. And, uh, and I read it. And they still haven't realised the fact that there are two of us, despite the fact that in that novel, he writes about there being another novel, another novelist, because he puts himself in the novel and he puts me in the novel. Um, indeed, he even got me to write a small section of the novel. Uh, again, I've lost my thread. <laughs> it's like going down some kind of rabbit hole. That's okay. What's uh, it like to be immortalised in a novel? Oh, it's great. I loved it. Great fun. But uh, this Guardian reviewer uh, didn't get the joke or, or didn't get the novel, really didn't like it. And right. It wasn't a very nice review and, and Nick was a bit upset. <laughs> just to rewind slightly, I'd yeah. just like to ask you about, in terms of the actual writing yeah. and the, the topics you... We talked a bit about the topics that you decided, or the, the ideas. Yes. I just wanted to ask you two things, actually. about. So the first one is where your ideas come from or how long an idea takes to to germinate yeah um and the second thing is do you actually write for a particular person because i've often heard or read novelists writers say they write with the person in mind Mm. or radio presenters Mm -hmm. speak with a person in mind that they're speaking to okay is there a is is that true for you so that where do the ideas come from and how long do they sort of take and then yeah when you're writing are you writing two or four a particular person um where do the ideas come from? That is one of those questions that gets asked a lot. And uh, some writers have a stock response, um, a funny, you know, a comedy response, like, oh, I have a, a subscription service. Or, or um, I used to say they're dropped by aeroplane because I used to live under the flight path mm. in Shepherd's Bush in London. And uh, I used to say, well, planes drop them on the on the uh, skylight window. And then I... I open it and, and allow them to fall into the loft where I work. Um, they come from, this goes back to something we were talking about earlier, from all around me. Um, so if I uh, look out of my windows in this flat, uh, I see other flats and I see other people going about their lives. And that is a source of inspiration to me. I'm interested in, I don't want to labour the point, but... Uh, in case my neighbours start to become concerned. But um, <laughs> I'm fascinated. It's it's like Rear Window, the Hitchcock film. Mm. Uh, the James Stewart character is stuck in in his apartment looking out and you know, he's watching other people going about their lives and st- something happens. So that is uh, a source of ideas. Um, just basically, wherever I am, wherever I'm spending time, whatever I'm doing, I'm always... I don't have to make any special effort to be on the lookout. I'm always alert. Uh, and if I if something strikes me as a good idea, um, I'll immediately write it in my notebook because I know from experience that if I don't, it'll be like a dream and I'll have forgotten it within a few hours or by the next day. Do you always have a notebook with you? Yes, always have a notebook in my back pocket and always a pen. Always have two notebooks, actually, mm. because um, I can't... When I when I finish one, um, I can't quite. You'll note they're the same but different. Yes, they're, they they're, are. One's a green, one's a red yeah. little notebook with spirals on the yes. front. Same design. They're the same design. They're made by a stationery company called Fabriano, um, and a friend of mine 
this is this is this relates to something else we we're talking about. A friend of mine called Conrad, but not not um, okay. I have a friend who lives locally called Conrad Williams, um, who, who's also a writer. Funnily enough, there's another Conrad Williams who's also a writer, um, <laughs> much to my friend Conrad's uh, chagrin. I think it's fair to say. Um, and some years ago, Conrad lived in a different house in Didsbury that was owned by somebody else called Conrad. Um, and that other Conrad, Conrad Liza, um, used to buy me these notebooks. Um, whenever, for some reason, whenever he passed through a particular airport in Germany. Uh, so he'd get, and you, they come in packs of four. Um, and I've got a, a big line of them on a bookshelf in my bedroom. And it's kind of poignant that I've worked out I've probably got enough notebooks for the rest of my life. Because I know oh, so they're fresh ones rather than used ones. Yeah. I've got I've got the used ones as well. Have you kept all the used ones? Yes, keep all the used ones. And I've got all the empty ones too, and I've probably got enough empty ones to last me the rest of my How life. How many is that just out of interest? I almost don't want to I mean I could go and have a look, but uh <laughs> roughly, is it oh a couple of hundred or no 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 many fewer. Oh okay. So you don't they, go you don't jot that many ideas down in them. Um well there aren't that many, but I use them for other things. Right. You know, it's not just ideas, it's shopping lists. It's, okay. It's um now I, I write in a dream diary, but only when I'm home. If I'm if I have a dream somewhere else, I'm away from home or I'm in London, then and I want to write down a dream, I write it in this notebook. Um so there's a lot of and if I meet someone and I want to write down their name, maybe their number or, or email address, again, the notebook. Um I did that yesterday with a couple of people I met because I know that if I don't I have no way of remembering their name. No. Or if someone recommends something to me, you must watch this film. Again, I've got to write down the title of the film and the person who recommended it to me because otherwise it's frustrating. You watch the film some months later and you think, who recommended that thing so I can tell them I've finally seen it? So I can look back in the notebook and, and see. And so how long have you used that particular this, brand of notebook? This Oh, this brand of yeah. notebook, um, probably since uh, the... The late noughties. Okay. Um, but you've never actually bought one yourself. They've all been... I think they've all been given to me by yes. Conrad Lyser. Um, and so, yeah, how long has that particular one? That one's looks one, pretty well worn. Yeah, this one was begun. I usually put a start date, 16th of July last year. Right. And this one is about halfway through. Um, so, yeah, they last about six months. Right. Uh, this they're not huge notebooks, are they? they no, really? no, they're quite they're pretty small. small. This one was the one... The A6, is that? previous one, A, I don't know, actually. Yeah. Um, I should know. It's like photograph size, isn't it? Roughly. Uh, it, maybe old photograph. Yeah. Um, six, six by four, but they're, they're probably only six by three or something. Anyway, um, it fits nicely in a, in a, a jeans back pocket. Mm. Um, the previous one was started January 17, and, and so must have run out in July 17. So they last about six months. Um, so you can work out mm, yeah. how many <laughs> empty ones I've got. So on yeah, lo- not not two hundred. Given that, uh, <laughs> given that I, um, I have, I'm optimistic about about being around for a long time. Yeah. Um, despite constantly being worried that I might not be, um, as a hypochondriac. Uh, anyway, why, why did we talk about notebooks? It was I was asking about where ideas. Oh, where from. ideas come from? They come from all around me. Yeah. Every, everything that happens. Um, occasionally 
they'll come i mean they often come from images things will start with images so it'll be something that i've seen it's almost always something that i've seen um it's very rarely actually i don't know about that um i was going to say it's very rarely um an abstract idea um it's usually an image so for the novel the director's cut it was the image of a strip of celluloid and it was the idea that a that a piece of amber resembles a strip of celluloid especially a piece of amber that has something in it um, an inclusion an insect or something that's like a piece of celluloid with images on it that caught in it's a similar color um and it's about something being caught in it and they're both images and you they both allow light to shine through them uh and it was my mum who gave me the idea for the amber in that novel because she mentioned to me that that there was... Um, she lives in East Anglia and she'd either seen people or she'd heard about people, women, always women, walking along the, uh, the, the beach looking for pieces of amber that get washed, washed up from the Baltic. Um, and I was... Uh, my imagination was caught by that image of of women looking for pieces of amber and thinking why they're looking for them, what do they contain, and um, so that's where that particular novel came. Is from. Is that often the case with ideas that become a novel or a short story that it's an image, yeah, as much as a, as an idea? You know, it's In actually a visual thing. Yeah, very often it's a visual thing, uh, but not always uh, an object. Often an object, but but not always. Um, I mean, I've got an idea for a story that I'm thinking about turning over in my head, have been doing for the last few weeks that I haven't started writing yet, that isn't, uh, doesn't come from an image at all. It's, it is that thing that I said I almost never write about, which is an abstract idea, but it's, it's something, it's a phenomenon. Uh, so, that, you know, occasionally I write about phenomena. Uh, it's something that I've noticed. Um, if, if I'm trying to, um, I play football, as you know, we've played football together. Yes. Um, and I organize a weekly game. And if I'm trying to think of all 10 people who I know are due to play on a Wednesday night, I find that I can often think of nine of them, including myself, but I can't think of the last one. And I find that really interesting. And often, and I do cryptic crosswords. I do the Guardian crypt, no, the Observer Everyman cryptic crossword. Often, I'll finish it up to the last clue, and I find I can't do the last clue. So clearly, there's something interesting going on there. What? Yeah. And I don't know what it is. So why? Yeah. Why is that then? Or don't is, know. Have you thought of any? Have you come to any? No. Sort but, of. But when I write the story, it will be a question of of yes. trying to answer that question. Why does it happen? Uh, I've noticed it because it happens, but why does it happen? That's interesting to me, and, and writing the story will, story will be a process of trying to find out why it happens. Um, and maybe I won't find the answer, and that doesn't really matter, because um, writing for me is is a, a process of, of asking questions. And as a reader, I like to read stuff that, that asks questions and doesn't necessarily answer them. Um, I think some readers maybe want everything answered and want everything cut and dried and tied up at the end. Whereas I like questions left hanging and I like ambiguity. I like things that, you know, it could be this, it could be that. 
Um, do you plot out a novel, or do you just no. start? No, I just start. Start. With I mean, the I might idea. I might plot out a little bit, a chapter or two, or I might have a very very rough idea of where I want to head towards, um, but not how to get there. And I, I certainly don't. I'm not a plotter. I mean, some of my novels have plots, but they're constructed very slowly and gradually as I go. Um, and even if I could plot in advance, I don't think I would. Um, because I don't think I'd be interested then in writing it. Because um, partly for me, the fun and interest in writing it is a question of finding out how to write it and finding out where it's going and, and how it all turns out in the end. Yeah, so it's almost yeah, it's a, an unknown destination. You, yeah. you set off with You're, an idea and, and you see where it leads you. Yes, and in fact, this comes back to the... Because you asked two questions. Yeah. This, this, in a sense, answers the other question, who is, my, who is the reader that I'm writing for? I think it's probably myself. And that might sound self-indulgent, but, it's, but I don't think it is. It's just that um, I genuinely, genuinely want to know what's going to happen in the kind of stories that I like to write, which is not to say that it's all repeating myself now but it's, when we get to the end it doesn't have to be all explained and often isn't um but there's got to be something at the end there's got to be some kind of shift or change of perspective or be, the beginnings of of a realization or or something like that but loose ends and ambiguity is you're quite yeah, happy with those i'm very concept. comfortable with those yeah. yeah i must admit i i like those elements in tv series as yeah. well and in novels where yeah. things are pop up and then they're, they're, but they're never explained. Yeah. And I like the sort of, whether that's accidental or intentional, I also like yeah. that idea. Yeah. I think it's, uh, I mean, if everything was boiled down just to plot and it was just about plot and there was nothing else and there were no red herrings, you know, because some of those things will be deliberate and there'll be red herrings and they're good fun. Um, but you want some other stuff in there. You want texture and because that, that's closer to life. Life's got all sorts of stuff going on. You don't want to be too random. You don't want you don't want to try to, well, unless that is your project. To uh, and you know, some experimental novelists might say, yeah, I'm trying to replicate life as closely as possible. So it's all got to be random. Um, I'm kind of interested in that as an approach, um, and have tried it once. Well, randomness, but but not necessarily trying to. Certainly not trying to mimic the sense of chaos or the you know the, the chaotic nature of life, um, but uh, yeah, I think I think I'm the person that I'm writing for. Um, I'm just trying to think whether when I'm writing, I also think about the people because I am aware of my readers and very I'm grateful to them and really interested in them and uh but I don't think I have any one particular one of them in mind when writing or is nobody from you know your childhood or from I um, don't know it's, it's a yeah is no I think so no I'd like to ask you to rewind a bit in terms of, you mentioned the photo of your dad and mm. you also mentioned that your parents gave you the first yeah. picador yeah. and you mentioned growing up. Um, 
Where was it you said, sorry? Well, I was born in Manchester and then went, when I was very small, we went to Whitley Bay. Whitley Bay, in, that was in, it. in the northeast, and then came back when I was about eight or nine. Yeah. Now, obviously, your dad was experimenting with photography yeah. and they gave you the, the book. What, how old yeah. were you when you got the, they gave you the book? Well, that was published in 83, so I was um, 20. Okay. Is that right? Uh, is it published in 83? Do you want to get it out? Which it's, one is uh, it? Black Water by Manguel. And there's two copies of it side by side, and there's a reason for that. Yeah, that one of those two. There it is. Yeah. Thank you. Good, this is my copy that you've got me. The other one I bought last year because I saw it in Oxfam, and I recognised it had a name in it of its previous owner, and I realised I knew that person. Right. And I knew also... It was dedicated to her by a friend of hers, and I I knew who the friend was from right. things that she told me. And it, so I th- I thought I've got to buy. You've that. You've got to buy that, yeah. Uh, yeah, published nineteen eighty three. So I was twenty. Right. Um, I'm pretty sure I was given it. And interestingly, that other copy uh, was also given to its recipient on Christmas Day, nineteen eighty three. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Another reason this why is I getting felt too I strange. To all these these coincidences and yeah, yeah, the, yeah it's very it's very strange once these things start happening. Yeah. They seem to come in groups. Yes. So just in terms then of you know when you were growing up, yeah, your, your mom and dad, yeah. your parents, yeah, and how encour- were they were they a big factor? Maybe say your dad's experimenting with photography. Do you yeah. think that you've got a lot of the the sort of your cr- desire to be creative or the drive to be creative from yeah. them? Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I have in recent years come to realise that my, well, that particular photograph by my dad has been very important, uh, has certainly shaped the way that I think about things and the things that I'm interested in and drawn to. Um, I don't remember there being any particular encouragement to, um, to write and I didn't start writing. I mean, I wrote little bits and pieces at uh, school, but um, uh, I didn't start writing till I went away to university. Um, but my mum and I used to watch an awful lot of films together, and I'm a huge film buff. We used to watch films late at night. Um, my dad was often on shift work, um, and uh, so we watched loads and loads of films together. For instance, my favourite film, um, in, in my opinion, the greatest film ever made, Don't Look Now. Mm. I know I watched for the first time on telly with my mum in, I think it was 1978, because that's, I think, when it was on telly for the first time, BBC Two. Uh, so we used to watch loads and loads of films together, often very old films from the 30s and so on. Uh, and, you know, without her encouraging me to watch those, maybe I would never have seen them. And they were, they have been enormously, uh, um, they've enriched my life. And, and, uh, I regret not doing more of that with my own children, not, not, not making them watch stuff. But I think that's partly because, well, I was going to say it's partly because, our experience of watching things has changed and everybody watches their own thing to a certain extent. And, um, 
but I know there are other people my age who've who've made a you know Nick Lazard used to have a film night with with his kids and uh, I should have done that you know I wish mm. I'd done that um, but my my daughter and I have watched some films together and 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 it's great when we when you do that and anyway I've kind of gone off the point yes my mum encouraged me to watch films and I, I watched them with her and. Um, um, I think that's very has been very important to me, it, encouraging this this love of of creative work, whatever it is, whatever medium it's in. Um, uh, but I didn't start writing until I uh, went to university, and I, and I showed my work to my parents, and um, and they were encouraging, and and uh, that was good. Uh, that was very important to me. Yeah. Uh, and um it's a shame to me that my my mum is 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 uh very healthy and uh alive and well and it's great she's very very supportive of my writing and uh loves to read my new stuff and indeed reports to me when if she goes in a bookshop she says nicholas they haven't they haven't got your book <laughs> and uh and she's cross and I, and I like that um <laughs> Uh, my dad died in 1994, so it, it, you know I'm, it's a shame to me that um, he only read my early stuff, which wasn't that good, or which was very, very weird and very strange, too weird and strange for his taste, probably. Um, even though, uh, you know, the, probably the last thing of mine that he read, uh, in fact, I don't even know if he did read it... Um, no, the, my second novel was called Saxophone Dreams, and it was all about my, it was about jazz and my love of jazz, which I completely get from my dad, mm. um, because he played. This is another way in which he has, yeah, which comes back to that question of yours: Did my parents form my, or help encourage my creativity? They helped certainly helped form my and influence my enthusiasms so my mum with film my dad with music because he was playing he would always be playing jazz at home and I would constantly be complaining about it saying this is awful it's just a racket and it's just <laughs> the trumpet player plays for a bit and everybody claps and then the pianist play and I I used to complain about that you know the the, the way that jazz soloists would um they do a little bit and then they get a clap and of course now I just love that if, if I go and see a jazz band playing and they do that kind of thing, I just love that, that the routine of it and the convention of it. And I love improvisational jazz now, improvised jazz in a way that I didn't, you know, I didn't appreciate it when, when my dad was playing it on the record player. Do you think that's partly that you now like jazz yourself or mm. that you, you like to listen to it because it reminds you of that time? Well, I, I started to like it um, when I was around, probably around about 18, 19, 20. There were certain artists that he would play that I I realised, yeah, you know, I actually like this. I liked Blossom Deary. I liked Mose Allison. I liked the Eureka Brass Band of New Orleans Funeral Marching Band. Um, and this was an Annie Ross um, uh, singer. Uh, I liked all of that stuff enormously, uh, even and so I think my dad was pleased that some of the stuff that he played, I I really liked and um, 
over the years, um, while he was still alive, and but then after he died, um, my you know my I ranged further afield, and I started to listen to a lot of artists that yes he listened to and that I'd heard of and that were familiar to me because he played them at home, but also loads and loads of stuff that that he never um, listened to, and indeed while he was still alive in the last few years of his life, I would. I would buy him stuff uh, for birthdays and, and Christmas and so on. I'd, I'd buy him new CDs by artists that I'd come across that he didn't know about. And that was nice that I was able to do that. Um, but it has... Over, I don't know. I mean, do I listen to it now because it was what my dad listened to and it takes me back to being young or do I just like it for itself? I think a bit of both, but, but mainly I just like it for itself. And I think over the years I... I realised it's brilliant. You've learned to appreciate yeah, it in a yeah. way that you, your dad would be pleased with yes, it now. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, I'd like to ask you um, about your first novel. Yeah. Now, not only do, because of... Do you mean my first novel or the ah, book yeah. called okay, First Okay, so, so you have a... Well, your last novel yes. was called First Novel, yes. wasn't it? But yeah. also about your very first okay, novel, okay. Uh, Counterparts. Yeah. But also because, not only just about that, but because you have a bit of a fascination with... First novels. Yes, I I do believe yes. Yes. from your from the stuff that I've read in first novel. Yes, <laughs> and the fact that um, well, there's a couple of things I'd like to ask you about that in a bit about why you're so fascinated by people authors first novels. Yeah. But I'd like to ask you about the journey that you took, or the the the, the kind of steps that you went through from deciding. Or when do, or when you decided yeah. that you wanted to write a novel? Yeah. When you were inspired to do that, and then how long that then took before Counterparts was written and then okay. eventually published? Okay. Um, when so I yeah, start- just to be clear, sorry. So yeah. your first novel was yes. called Counterparts. Your very yes. first novel was called published novel was called Counterparts. Correct. Your last novel, your seventh novel that was published, yeah. is called First Novels. Yes. So we'll t- <laughs> let's clear up the confusion. Yes. So we're talking here about your decision and then eventual journey to publishing counterparts. Yes. Okay. When I started writing, I was writing short stories. And looking back now, even looking back not many years later, I realised they weren't very good. Um, I mean, I I read first stories, you know, debut efforts by writers these days sometimes. And I think, wow, amazing. You know, if if only I'd been able to write that well when I started. Um, And... Uh, I think I started having ideas for counterparts uh, in the um, well in the early eighties. Uh, so eighty, eight, probably eighty three, eighty four. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Partly because, well, not partly because uh, I can remember that the, there's a character in in counterparts who was based on someone who I um, met. Uh, working at um, Pizza on the Park, um, which was then part of the Pizza Express chain in London. Um, And there was another character in it uh, based on, indeed I use her name, she was a waitress in a restaurant I used to go to a lot called Stockpot, a very cheap uh, restaurant that I used to go to almost every day uh, when I lived in uh, London and was a student um, because it was very, very cheap and friendly, and, and there was this waitress as well. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, 
it, it started to come about from from knowing these people. The the, the person that I worked with at Pizza on the Park, the, the waitress in the stop pot, um, another woman that I'd known uh, that I knew, I think in the summer of eighty three or eighty four, she appears in in the book. So it was about people that I was meeting, and and you know I was for the first time I was I was. I was I was living in London and meeting people from all over the world and different different sorts of people having different experiences. Um, I was a student. I was um, traveling for the first time, or traveling widely for the first time uh, around Europe in the summer. You know, going interrailing, um, and uh, I was fascinated also by what was happening with Eastern Europe. Uh, with the um, well, I was fascinated by the existence of the Soviet bloc, the so-called Iron Curtain. Um, I was fascinated by these countries on the other side of uh, the Iron Curtain, or the yeah, we called it the Iron Curtain. Mm, yeah, <laughs> it's funny you, you don't often hear that no, expression anymore because no. it's gone. Um, so fascinated by them, and I travelled to them and uh, just found it so exciting being in these places. Um, so I wanted to write about it, uh, write about them. Which ones in particular? Was uh, well, I was... East Berlin, for, for instance, was just amazing, the experience of going to East Berlin, because for years I'd I'd seen it in, in spy movies and so on, and, and just got excited by it and thought, will I ever get to go there? And I went there in the um, Easter of 1986, when I was close to reaching the end of my degree... And I was very bad at German. I'd never spent any time in Germany. I'd never been to Germany. And I knew that that could perhaps make a difference to my German. And I wasn't very good at German. I was hoping to get... I was doing French and German. My French was good because I'd spent a year in Paris. And I said to the university, um, I'm worried because, you know, I'm worried I'm going to fail my degree. And, and uh, so they said, well... What was your degree, by the way? French and German, right. combined honours. And... Uh, I need to go to Germany, but I can't afford to go to Germany. And they said, well, we'll pay for you to go to Germany. <laughs> so, that's very nice. So I went to Berlin for a long weekend in the, at the Easter of 1986. And it was snowing and it was really bitterly cold. I had holes in my shoes, but I had a great time. Um, long weekend. And uh, for one day of that long weekend, I went to the East, to East Berlin, spent a day walking around there. And um, so it was... It was about and so you you asked which of those countries did I find most interesting? Mm. Definitely East Germany. Well, the only part of East Germany I visited was East Berlin, and of course, what interested me about it was that it was well, yeah, that was in East Germany. It was this little sort of island in East Germany, and within it were East and West Berlin. Within it was West Berlin, which was part of West Germany, despite yeah. the fact it was in East Germany. Yes. I was fascinated by that. This idea that you, you 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 cross the border from West Germany to East Germany to get there, and then you re-entered West Germany in the form of West Berlin. And then within Berlin, you could go to East Berlin. Well, I could go to East Berlin, but of course, people in East Berlin could not go to West Berlin. Mm. And I was interested. That interested me or attracted me. Um, and uh, the other place that I found, re well, I found Yugoslavia fascinating, uh, not part of the Soviet bloc, of course, but um, the other country that was part of the Soviet bloc that I found 
really, really interesting was Romania. Um, but I found it so intensely paranoid and menacing that, that I didn't stay. Um, I'd booked a hotel and when I got into my hotel, there was just this atmosphere of menace and, and uh, that I didn't stay. So I left the same day and um, gave all the money that I'd had to change because you're obliged to change a certain amount of money, gave it all to a beggar in the station and um, probably a fortune to... Um, anyway, uh, so the, the places I was most interested in were East Berlin and Romania. But I didn't write about Romania in Counterparts. That was in a later novel. Mm. Um, so Counterparts was all about wanting to write about this business of East and West. And I was attracted by this image again, uh, the idea of an image, the idea of an image. I was attracted by this image of the Berlin Wall um, and uh, the idea of walking that line as a, well, my character was a, one of my characters was a tightrope walker. Um, and I liked that image of the tightrope. I got very interested in, in that. So again, it was about, um, it was about ideas, but it was also about images, the image of the tightrope, the image of the Berlin Wall, um, but obviously what was interesting about the Berlin Wall was, was the political reality uh, um, of it. So uh, I started writing it in the early to mid-80s and was still... I think I finished the first draft before 1989 when everything started to change, the Berlin Wall came down. So this uh, is five years or so later now. Yeah. 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 So it took you, it's the five-year process to get to yeah. the first first draft. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, so were you working as well at the same time? Yeah, for some of that time I was still a student, and then I was unemployed, and then I would, then I was working. What um, were you doing? Um, my first job was working at the National Union of Students. Second job was working for a company called the Visual Communications International Visual Communications Association, which was an association of companies and individuals who made what was called non-broadcast video. So things like training films and safety videos and, and point-of-sale videos and um, things like that. Um, and I was doing editorial stuff for them and organising a festival for them. Um, and were you sort of writing in the evenings then? Yeah, exactly, yeah. writing in the evenings. And um, and then doing a lot of rewriting after 1989, after the Berlin Wall came down and everything started to change. Um which initially I thought, oh, well, this, this ruins my novel. But, but then in the end, it made it much more, well, I, more interesting for me anyway. So you incorporated that? Yeah. Uh, down did in... I? <laughs> it's so long since I've looked at it. I think so. I know I had to do a lot of rewriting after. Yeah. Something happened yeah, after the Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm pretty convinced I, I incorporate it into the novel at the very end anyway. Um, and then... It was business of trying to find a publisher for it, mm. and I tried every publisher uh, in Britain. Excuse me, which at the time meant practically every publisher in London, and um, got close with one or two. But was that just a case of writing letters? Yeah, writing was, letters. Were you trying to go through agents or just straight to the publishers? Uh, initially, straight to publishers, uh, and each time you would have to give them a, a you know, solid manuscript, the whole thing, mm. and. Um, and they would take up to six months to read it and get back to you. So did that cost you a 
bit of money to get all the, a few copies of yeah. it made and yeah, yeah. But, but except you you could only do them one at a time right. so i you know maybe you could wait for your copy to come back and then send it out to the next one although if it's been read then it doesn't look as nice as no. I mean, so i certainly had to make more than one copy um and then if you make wanted to make changes to something to a manuscript in those days of course uh it wasn't the breeze that it is now in terms of just making changes on a computer. You had to, it was a question of tipex and slotting a page into the typewriter and trying to get exactly the same number of lines for the paragraph you want to replace. That and did you thing. write that whole first novel on the typewriter? I wrote it longhand and, and then typed it up. Was uh, that with one particular typewriter? Or yes. Do you still have it? No. Uh, I don't know where it is. I think I got rid of it because of lack of space. Uh, maybe when I was moving here or before that. Um, but it was a French typewriter, so the layout of the keyboard was slightly different, um, which um, I mean, I've never learnt to touch type. And possibly that's why, because when I was first using a typewriter, it was a French keyboard. That's because I got it when I was living in Paris. Mm. Um, uh, so everyone was rejecting it, but then uh, I became obsessed by this... No, I didn't. Um <laughs> I I offered it to um, a very small independent publisher called Barrington Books, which was run by one man called Christopher Kenworthy, and who had commissioned me to write a short story or one or two stories for anthologies that he was publishing with his small press, Barrington Books. And I'd sent him the novel, and, and it, eventually he read it and he said, yes, he wanted to publish it. And uh, I accepted his offer on my 30th birthday. So that's March the 20th, 1993. And, uh, and I did that quite deliberately, although he'd made the offer a few days before. I waited until my 30th birthday because Ian Banks accepted his <laughs> offer of publication of The Wasp Factory, his mm. first novel, on his 30th birthday. And I thought, this could be auspicious. And um, I liked The Wasp Factory a lot, although it wasn't my favourite Ian Banks' novel, which was The Bridge, his third novel. Uh, but so Chris published it with Barrington Books, um, very small edition, um, but it, it got a couple of good reviews, one in The Guardian, one in the TLS, and they were really, really good reviews. So good that, that Penguin, who had previously turned down the, the book twice, then offered to publish a um, mass-market paperback edition and indeed offered me a two-book deal. So they then did the second novel. So how did that, I mean, obviously I know that you have a, a love of, of Penguin yeah. paperbacks. How did that feel? Obviously oh. to get the first publication yeah. with Barrington Books, but then to be picked up by Penguin. It was enormously exciting, enormously. And uh, I'm trying to remember if I was disappointed not to have an orange spine on counterparts. <laughs> and What colour was your spine? It was black. Uh, was I that for a particular reason? Was there a reason why? Well, they, they no longer did books only with orange spines. They'd right. stopped doing that. Um, but they did occasionally do it, and indeed Saxophone Dreams, my second novel, came out with an orange spine. But this was, this was before I was seriously collecting right. books in the way that I do now. Uh, and, of course, I, although Saxophone Dreams is has an orange spine, I can't put it in this collection with my orange penguins because it's B format, and these are A format, and... I obviously can't do that. What's the difference between a B format is bigger. Oh, it's the big. This the actual physical size of the book. The yes, height, exactly the right. height, the height and the width. So right. those picadors are all B format. Right. 
and yeah. uh, and indeed my copies of Counterparts and Saxophone Dreams, the Penguin editions, are behind some of those picadors. All of those shelves are double stacked. There's books behind the picadors. <laughs> There's another lot behind yeah. there. On the other side of the wall? No. Um, if you pull it oh, out, behind, any of I those... behind these. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I see now. That makes yeah. sense. I was wondering how it was the 750 there, but now I understand yeah. why. Well, also, there's a load in, in there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Everywhere you look, there's yeah. picadors. Yeah. So that was the first novel. That was, And then the excitement that I'm, yeah. of, of being picked up by Penguin. Yeah. Then, so we're up to number seven now. I mean, yeah. how was the process then of like numbers two, three, four, five, six? Um, well, I did two novels with penguin and then the third novel was the matter of the heart for which i won the bad sex prize and was very excited to win it and uh, i was going to ask you about that i mean clearly there's well how did you feel when you were given that award only excited and and happy and pleased why I got an, well because i got an enormous amount of publicity yeah. which i otherwise wouldn't have got to the extent of even being on the news pages of newspapers you know for books that is almost unheard of or it was then. Um, plus, there was this party. They throw the most incredible party. And I met, you meet people. I met uh, Malcolm McLaren. Right. Um, I, I mean, there were, other, there were lots of famous people at the party. It was just exciting to be there and be the centre of attention. And uh, I can't deny that was good fun. Uh, was it one of the best bits of publicity you've ever had? The uh, Bad Sex Award? Yes. Yeah. So obviously it's double-edged in a way because it's an award for bad writing in what is in their opinion bad writing or yeah but but specifically bad writing about sex. <laughs> <laughs> and um most people assume that you you're going to be embarrassed to have won it whereas I, whereas I never have been I've always thought it was a bit of fun and I enjoyed it and uh, that's fine. You never felt disheartened. No. 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 Uh, that was published by Abacus, and I had a nice relationship with them. They published my next novel, which was called The Director's Cut. And uh, then I left Abacus and went to Serpent's Tale, I think, because The Director's Cut was the fourth novel. Fifth novel was Antwerp, which was a sequel to Director's Cut, and for which I'd Spent a lot of time in Belgium, travelling to Belgium. Again, we talked earlier about my love of Belgium. Um, I, you know, eventually decided I had to go there, and and, uh, because I want, I knew I wanted to write something set there, so I spent, went, went lots of times, uh, spent some time there, and explored it, and walked around a great deal, and so on. Uh, So that was Antwerp, and then what was the next? I've lost track. Uh, Counterparts, saxophone dreams. Matter of the Heart, Director's Cut, Antwerp. Okay, then there was a novel that I had written some years earlier, um, but only published later, um, in 2011, I think, called Regicide, or The Regicide. Regicide. Um, And then there was first novel, which was published by Jonathan Cape in 2013. And ever since then, I've been writing, uh, well, in theory... Uh, a, in very loose terms, a follow-up to first novel called Second Album, but uh, you know it's now 2018, five years on from the first edition of first novel, and uh, I'm not getting any closer to completing a, a, a new novel. Uh, but that's partly because I've come up with ideas for two other novels during the same time, and I'm, I'm now uncertain which one I should be working on. 
Um, and it's also because when first novel came out, although it was enormously warmly received in terms of its critical reception, great reviews, best reviews I've ever had, and also the um, biggest amount of uh, review space. Uh, but it didn't trouble the bestseller lists. And I don't want to trouble the bestseller list necessarily, but um, unless you sell a certain amount, your your publishers are not going to be are not going to take you that seriously. Uh, increasingly these mm. days, because of the way things have got, you know, we all know that times are hard for writers, and and uh, books sell fewer copies. Um, generally speaking, that is obviously some books still sell in vast numbers um, but a much much more limited number of books enjoy that kind of success um, so most for most writers now uh, advances are down and um, it's harder to get deals harder to get published it's still it's now easier to publish your first book than it is um, if you're in the middle of your career uh, to publish a new book if your previous books have not been particularly good sellers. Um, there's still a, a hunger for newness and first novels. You asked earlier about first yeah. novels. Um, yeah, what, what, what is, where does your fascination come from for the, the first novel that any writer produces? I think because there's something inherently interesting in what you say the first... You know, there's something in... People say, what was your first word? Um, I don't know what my first word was, but... Um, um, I know my son's was train, although he mispronounced it as tain, but we knew that he meant train because, um, uh, we lived in a house on, in Shepherd's Bush that backed onto the overground tube line. And so there were trains going past his window all the time. Um, so that made sense. Uh, so first, you know, that was his first word, first utterances, first, um, first novels are interesting, I think, partly because... They're not always the best novel that someone will write. I'm sure that's the case in my case, and uh, I'm sure that's the case for me. Uh, in some cases, I think people's first novels are remain their best, and obviously they don't want to hear that, because you always want to hear, yes, we think your latest novel is your best. In my case, I'm fairly sure that my latest novel, which is called First Novel, is my best so far, but... You know, that's a matter of, that's my opinion, that's subjective. Um, also, I became very interested. There was a book that I became very interested in, which I bought in paperback from a market stall in Ipswich in the, probably in 1982. Um, and I read it and I was interested by it. Uh, but I, you know, I didn't think it was the best book I'd ever read, but I was interested. But... Then I lost my copy or I gave it away or something and I couldn't... Some years later I was thinking about it, thinking I want to read that book again, but I couldn't remember what it was. And then I thought, okay, it's called The Haunted... Um, I decided it was called The Haunted Shore and that it was by Hillman, somebody Hillman. So I spent years trying to track it down, but it didn't, didn't seem to exist. And indeed, late, many years later I found out it didn't exist because I'd misremembered both the author's name and the title... And it was The Haunted Storm by Philip Pullman. Um, and it was Philip Pullman's first novel. Mm. And he, he has since become enormously successful yeah. and popular. And um, 
But weirdly, he won't talk about that book. He refuses to acknowledge it. He won't allow it to be reprinted. Hmm. Um, if you take him a copy to sign, apparently he scowls and, and refuses to sign. Has he explained why? No, I don't think he, he won't has. Talk about it he won't talk way. about it at right. all. And I think I've since managed to get hold of a copy. It's quite expensive if you can find a secondhand copy. But um, so I did get one and reread it, and it's it's not as good as I hoped it would be during all those years of searching for it again. Mm. Um, and it, it's got it's got a lot of quasi religious content, and I think maybe he's embarrassed by that right. because he's. You know, there's n- there's nothing quasi-religious about Philip Pullman or his work since he's he's. I don't think. I mean, I haven't read <laughs> I haven't read any of his later work. Um, but I, isn't he famous for um, uh, his dark materials? Yeah, but, yeah. but isn't he famous for? Um, isn't he one of the famous famous atheists? I believe so. He's quite yes. outspoken about it. I believe so. I feel I should know this because yeah. he's the president of the Society of Authors and I am a member of the Society of right. Authors. I should know what my president is saying. Yeah. Um, and I take note of, of wise things that he says about the state of writing and, yeah. and so on. But uh, I'm sorry, Philip, I've not been keeping up with your books. Um, I'm sure he's not that bothered. Uh, but I was very... Yeah, that helped for that particular book and the search for it over the years and then finding it and rereading it and the fact that he disowns it and that he's not alone in that. There are quite a number of writers who disown their first novels. And John Banville is another who is uh, not as extreme as Philip Pullman. He won't refuse to talk about it, but uh, you, you don't see it. For instance, Picador published John Banville or did for a number of years. I don't know if they still do. And I've got a number of his, one or two of his books up there, but his first novel has never been reissued by Picador and wasn't originally published by them. Um, Nightspawn, it was called. And it's it's probably not as good as his later novels, and maybe that's why he's not keen. Uh, but nevertheless, there remains something about it. I, I've read that and I really like it. Um, there's something about that first go, you know, that first effort... And it's partly the the youth. The I mean, very often first novels are written when you're young, maybe mm. too young to be writing a novel, and you make mistakes. And they interest me. Those mistakes. I made a lot of mistakes in Counterparts. I can see now mm. things that I tell my students, mistakes that I tell in them. In terms of inconsistencies, you mean? No, no. In terms of uh, that, the cardinal sin of telling rather than showing. Okay. You know, having said that, some people will say, "Oh, it's fine to tell." Depends how you do it. Uh, but there is a difference between showing and telling. And, and I didn't understand it at all then. And indeed, I didn't. It took me a while to understand that difference. Just tell me a bit about that. Okay, what is the difference? It's to do with, um, imagine um, you and I sitting here um, and we're having a conversation. Um, if I wanted to write that scene, I could either write, Nick and Guy sat down either side of this table. They had a couple of microphones and uh, some recording equipment, uh, the end. Or I could say the light was coming in through the bedroom window, there were some books on the wall, blah, 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 said Nick. Oh, really, said Guy. So in other words, you create a scene and you show the reader what's happening. Um, you don't tell them what's happening. Um, so it's a way of bringing, bringing something alive. Um, 
And if you can show the development of a character through the way a character changes, it's much more powerful and effective than at some you know on page twenty five saying, and then John became more selfish in his approach to relationships. Yeah, you know, that's not that's not interesting. Um, you show you you tell the story in, in what he does. Yes. Yeah. So that we see him become more selfish in his approach to relationships, rather than being told. Uh, much more effective and we're involved because we're, you know, it's like the difference between um, somebody, it's like if you read a synopsis for a novel, that's not interesting at mm. all. Uh, and indeed, I find them really hard to read. I always compare it to eating a stock cube <laughs> rather than <laughs> rather than eating a lovely soup or stew that yeah. you might use the stock Because it's completely compressed down yeah. into its basic yes basic essence yeah. n- and not with all the rest of that comes exactly. with it yeah. yeah um first novels is that answered the first novels question yeah i was going there was something i was going to ask you about it um oh yeah i was going to say when you think about your favorite novels you've already yeah. mentioned a couple but mm. of the of the novels that you love the most mm. and or maybe revisit how many of those are, are first novels um, As in of that author, yeah. Um, quite a few, uh, and it's well. In some cases, I haven't read beyond an author's first novel because I like the first novel so much. I slightly worry that the later novels can't possibly be as good. That's the case. Oh, so do you actively not read the rest? Yeah, of someone's I mean, I, I might buy them and I might have them sitting on the shelf waiting to read. But but if there's a choice between reading, for instance, if I have to choose between reading, I don't know, as the second or third or fourth novel by Siri Hustvet, who wrote The Blindfold, which was her first novel and which I adored, and reading any other book, I'll probably read any other book. And it's partly because, if I'm honest, it's partly because her later novels tend to get a bit longer and I'm not a big fan of long novels. <laughs> and it's partly because I'm thinking to myself, can they possibly be as good as The Blindfold? And quite likely they're much better than The Blindfold. And in due course I'll find out, but, you know. Do you think that love of the, uh, or the you know, the, the idea of the first novel... It- is partly why you're involved so much in you know editing with Salt and the, your own imprint with Nightjar. You know, you is that you know you you edit your own yeah uh, publish your own books uh, no. other people's books yes. through yeah. Nightjar. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, is that a big part of why you're involved in the editing publishing side as well? Um, is what why in the 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 love of the first novel? So oh, okay. It's often you'll be you'll be getting, I guess, yes. with Nightjar and with yes. Salt people's yes. first pieces of work. Yes, um, yes. For instance, someone's just sent me a story uh, for Nightjar, which I've which I've read, and I'm I'm trying to decide whether to do it or not, and I haven't quite decided. And at the back of my mind, I know that if I were to find out that this was this would be that person's first published short story, I'd be more keen to do it. Um, uh, and in terms of Salt, um, a lot of the novels that I've commissioned for Salt and edited for them and, and that have ended up being published have been first novels. And I'm looking at a line of them now. And... Um, and Yes, I think there is. I mean, it's partly the 
because I can remember how exciting it was having one's first novel, having my first novel published. And I love to, to give that, that excitement to somebody else. You know, it's just a nice feeling. Is that a big part of why you do Nightjar? Um, well, what? Nightjar and Salt are, are different, but, but it, I think um, the same motivation Sorry, yeah, you lies were talking behind about salt then, Yeah, but, that, but, but it's the, the same motivation. Yeah. The, the, the desire to publish... Um, well, it's the desire to publish good work. And um, within that, you can break that down into the satisfaction you can get from publishing someone's work and seeing their pleasure at it being published and the satisfaction of knowing that you've started that author's career. You've launched them. That's really exciting. In addition, um, there's... Um, I've lost, I've lost track because there are some noises. Going yeah, on. I was are, just about to say there is, there are people working on the roof of your there are. flat, yes. uh, block of flats. Aren't yes, there, there <laughs> are. You hear some thumping, and they've been very quiet up to yeah. now. They've obviously not been there. No, they're sticking. They're currently, I think, they're putting the ladders up um, past my kitchen window, <laughs> and we can hear them climbing up there. So any minute now, probably there'll be some loud noises from above. Some thumping from above. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, so with. Um, Salt, yes, many of the books that I've published there have been first novels. That's very exciting to to launch an author's career. But then it's exciting also to, to get new novels from those authors and, and see how their writing develops and and if their career can develop. Um, and, I yeah, I, I love doing that. A couple of other things I'd like to ask you about. The first one is uh, you have a tattoo. Yes. Can you tell me, tell us about your tattoo? Okay. Uh, my tattoo is a word, and indeed I am a word um, through having this tattoo. Uh, and it's a word in a short story by an American writer called Shelley Jackson, whose name is very similar to that of Shirley Jackson, but they are two different writers. Shelley is a contemporary of mine. In fact, she was born the same year I was born. She is an American writer. She lives in Brooklyn. She's published one novel, I think, and a lot of stories and one collection of stories. And... I'm a word in in this one particular story, which is called Skin, and which is published on the bodies of, however, the number of volunteers is the same as the number of words in the story. It's some, it's over two thousand. Right. Um, uh, this was several years ago. You you had to volunteer if you wanted to become a word, and I'd never wanted a tattoo. But when I saw that there was an opportunity to become a word in one of Shelley Jackson's stories, I was already a fan of her work. I jumped at it so I volunteered and I was very pleased to be uh, accepted because there were many many more people applying than there were right. spots uh, spaces available um, my word is later and, uh, and where is it it's on my left or right shoulder <laughs> I don't know now. Uh, oh it's on my left shoulder okay uh, but at the back so it's on my back really but at the right. left shoulder um, and um, I think I've asked for it to be on that side so that if I later wanted something on to be symmetrical, I could have something put on the other side and it would read from left to right. Right. <laughs> um, but having had the first tattoo, there's very little danger of me going for another one. Was it painful? It was extremely painful. Was and I, 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 I've already said once during this podcast that i'm in awe of somebody however i will repeat myself i am in awe of anybody who goes back again and again and again for more tattoos <laughs> and especially if they well i don't know 
whether they admit it's painful or not, because it is painful, or it was to me anyway. Uh, however, I'm very, very uh, proud of it and pleased to be. And so have all the letters, uh, the words got together at one point to, to no. form the published novel? No, no, that that would be a nice idea. For, uh, stories, but it's a story, short story. Sorry, so yeah, it's short only about 2,000 words. Uh, 2, words. Um, but no, we've never gathered in one place, gathered in one place, but... Um, and has it been published on no, paper? No, no so you are, the, you are I am part, part of, of the, the published work. Yes. And indeed, um, you only, the only people who read it are words in the story. So it has a built-in limited edition um, in terms of uh, how many... There is no copy as such. Um, and you only get to read it if you're a word in the story. So you have read it? I've read it. But I'm. I couldn't lend it to you, for example. No. Uh, well, I could, but I did. Do. You feel some proud when you you got to your word? Yes. Um, <laughs> it's um, not, is it the final word? No, it's not the final <laughs> word. Um, did someone pay, or did someone, a special person, get the honour of having I, the, the final or know. first word? I don't know. <laughs> um, but I think my word appears first. At, at one point, Shelley put together a little. Um, compendium of um, video clips she asked people to uh, do a little video clip or photograph of their word their tattoo and send it to her and she put together a little video and mine appeared first in that which, which was nice uh, that, that may still exist somewhere online it probably does um we have never gathered in one place and it's it's in the contract that you sign with Shelley that you're not allowed to to show the story to anybody else. Right. Um, and uh, um, it's also in the contract that she says that she will make every effort to attend funerals of her words. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Have there been any? Funerals? I don't know. Right. I don't know. Uh, much as I admire her work, and she seems an extremely nice person. She's not a terribly good correspondent. Right. Uh, so um, it, you can go a long time waiting for an answer to an email. Okay. There's a few questions I'd like to just ask yes. at the end here. These are the questions that I'm going to ask everyone yes. that appears yeah. on here. Um, first one is, do you have a routine? So when you're sitting down, you know you're going to sit down to write... Uh, part of a novel mm. or short story or whatever. Do you have a routine or a specific set of circumstances that you, in a certain room or in a certain place, certain equipment? Yeah. Tell me about that. Um, I do most of my writing on the train. Um, I travel a lot between Manchester and London and I do most of it in seat 48 in carriage A on the uh, Pendolino. Um so do you book your tickets way in advance so that you can specify that seat? You can no longer specify seat 48A. Ah, so you get there early. Me. Yes, you get there. The reason you can't is because they made it a cyclist-only seat. Um, but So it's it's automatically booked for cyclists, that and seat 47. Do you take a bike with you as well? No. <laughs> so <laughs> Do you I, say, I'm a cyclist? No. There's a certain, there's a frisson now to sitting there because you could get kicked out by a cyclist at okay. any point. Okay. Um, and if it's not, if it's not a cyclist sitting there, then it might be the cleaner. There's an onboard cleaner usually and very often before the train sets off, um, they'll be sitting down 
in seat 47 or 48. So if I board and I see that there's a cleaner now, I'm disappointed. Do you still write? I try, but it's, it's less easy in another seat. Uh, so why then is it so important to be in that seat? Um, because I, I do like routine. And I like that seat partly because there's no one behind you. Um, behind you is the cab. Um, so there's the driver behind you if you're going towards Manchester. Because they're almost always in a particular formation. Um, and if you're going towards London, then there's nobody behind you. Because uh, the drive's at the other end. Um, it's not that, you know, that's, uh, I guess that's one thing, one reason I like that seat. There's no one behind you. Um, although, you know, I, I'm, I don't know. I'm trying to think now why I like that seat. I'm wondering if that might be a reason. Right. Uh, I don't have an objection to there being people behind me. <laughs> uh, um, I suppose, is it that it's it's a feels private it feels if, like you're in your own little bubble yes There's nobody it's right it's at the people, end of the not train that someone's not behind it's not that you have a problem with people behind you but it feels like a almost like a private office yeah. almost and i kind of like the I, I initially i didn't like it when they made those two seats site for cyclists only because it meant i could no longer book that seat um and now i just have to hope that it's available when i get on the train um but it does tend to mean that Members of the public don't tend to sit there. Members of the public, as if I'm not one. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, because they look and they see that it says reserved for cyclist and they think, oh, okay, I can't sit there. Um, but I don't let that stop me. Is there an element that you're somehow breaking the rules slightly um, as well? No, because I don't generally like breaking the rules. I don't think, um, although I have broken a number of rules over the years. <laughs> But that's not one I particularly... There's no, there's no enjoyment in breaking that rule. Um, and I don't appreciate people who sit in Coach A, which is the so-called quiet zone, mm. and break that rule, the mm -hmm. one about being quiet. Uh, I really don't appreciate those rule breakers. And I've what told rules, what rules have you broken in the... Uh, oh, God. Um, well, that I made a radio programme last year for Radio 4 called Late Returns that was about returning long overdue library books. And people characterise that failure to have returned those books as theft. I never thought of it as theft, but effectively, of course, it was. Um, <laughs> but in my case, I had particular reasons for not having given back those particular books. Anyway, now they've all gone back and as part of that making that programme. Uh, what are the rules? I suppose I've occasionally broken the speed limit. LAUGHTER okay. um, uh, there's no no thrill in that, and nor would I recommend it. No. <laughs> in fact, these days I'm almost always under the speed limit. Right. Uh, I suppose as a younger man, I would be more likely to break the speed limit. Hmm. What other rules have I broken? Um, um, I can't think, and I don't want to get myself in trouble. No. <laughs> Let's go back to the seat forty. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, is, are you writing longhand? Yeah. Yes. Uh, no. No. I always write on uh, uh, a laptop. Laptop. These okay. days. Yeah. And do you have a particular routine in terms of what you have for, like, coffee or um, sandwich or...? On, you mean as part of the, the writing? Yeah. So on, on the train? Yeah. Um, I often will take a packed uh, sandwich, make my own sandwich. It was interesting when I read in the manuscript of Alison Moore's forthcoming new novel, 
which is called Missing, which we're publishing at Salt. There's a little bit in it about um, one character sees a, a man on a train opening a, uh, a tinfoil-covered sandwich that he'd obviously made at home, and the character contemplates how unusual this is these days. You don't tend to see people doing this. And I immediate, when I read that, I was on that train, <laughs> and I, was, uh, I immediately texted Alison to say, hey, guess what? I'm just sitting here reading your book, and I've just read this bit, and I'm just opening my, my sandwich that I made earlier this morning and wrapped in tin foil." And she didn't respond because later she said she didn't know it was from me because she'd lost her phone and she didn't know whose number it was and blah, blah, blah. Random. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I'll very often make a sandwich uh, or make a little sort of Mediterranean salad right. in, a, in a takeaway container and that I'll eat with pita bread or something. And I guess I, I like to have that sandwich and then get down to some work. And do you find that that sort of two-hour, because that's the length of it journey, is. isn't it? Yeah. London to Manchester... Do you find that two-hour window helps focus the mind? Yes, I do. Yes. But it can also help focus the mind for doing any any other work that I've got on. <laughs> yeah. And if I have got any other work on, invariably that work will take priority over my own work, which is not how it should be. Mm. That's why I've not written a new novel for some years, because I'm, I've got so many other things going on and I spend too much time doing them. Um, I mean, not too much... You know, in term, you know, I have to spend the amount of time that I spend on my university job, and the salt work, and and well, obviously, Nightjar is my own thing. I could, I could stop doing that, mm. and then I'd have a bit more time for writing. But I, I love doing Nightjar, and so I keep doing it. Um, but yes, it is a that that journey is a good two-hour stretch um, where you can concentrate, and um, I find that the the the, the motion. You know, the, the fact of moving forward in space uh, is somehow seems to help uh, just as I guess the slight motion of the train also helps. Um, my girlfriend doesn't like the she can't work on the train because the motion of the train, the fact that it tilts means if she's trying to work it, it, it she starts to feel sick sometimes from that. Um, I'm very fortunate because although I'm very, very susceptible to motion sickness on um, boats, for example, on water, mm. it doesn't bother me at all on the train. I can't, in cars, I'm really bad. If I'm sitting in the back of a car, I get travel sick. But on the train, I'm fine, which is a great blessing because I use it a lot. Mm. And do you think that that kind of feeling of going somewhere is a big part of it? Yeah, you're, you're, think you're it is. going, you're, you're moving yeah, forward. And yeah, and you look out the window and there's constantly something different there. Whereas if I'm sitting at my desk, I look out the window, it's always exactly the same. I like the motion. I like the the. It's not really motion. It, it's it's moving through space, um, and I find that enormously helpful. Also, when I'm working on, you asked earlier about plotting. Do I plot? And the only situation in which I can plot, and then only for a very short space, like a chapter or two ahead, is when I'm walking. So if I need to work out what happens in the next chapter or in a story. I'll, and it's not coming to me sitting at my desk. I go out for a walk and I walk for maybe an hour or more and ideally talk to myself out loud. That helps concentrate the mind as well, helps me focus. Uh, and again, I'm convinced there's something about the mechanical act of walking and the moving forward through space that, that makes a big difference. I suppose you'd have to choose your yes. walking locations carefully yeah. if you yeah. do. <laughs> yeah, if I walk through the centre of Manchester... So, Nick, uh, here we are, chapter two. 
you get some funny looks. <laughs> so next question: What's the the thing that you've created or the the event that you're most proud of? Oh, that gives you you know the doesn't have to be about money or about the yeah. the the scale of it. It's yeah. more the thing that that you're as an individual, you know, uh, the, the, the individual moment that you think, oh yeah, that was that was brilliant. And we're not counting my children. Well, we can do. Yeah, it can be anything. <laughs> well, it's my, it would be children. my children, I suppose. Okay, after um, your children. After my children. <laughs> it would be... Um, uh, I think it would be... <laughs> well, I'm very, very proud of the book of mine that came out most recently, which is called Ornithology which is a book of my stories about birds. Because um, I'm, I'm very... I'm, there's, most of those stories are still sufficiently recent that I still think they're OK. Um, and the publisher did such a beautiful production job on the book that I'm really, really proud of it. Um, I'm very proud of First Novel. I still think that's a good novel. Um but there's something about, well, in terms of salt, I'm very, I love every book that I've commissioned for salt and published, but I can't deny there's something extra exciting when one of those books be, gets noticed more widely. So when Alison's Moore, Alison Moore's first novel, The Lighthouse, was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize in 2012, that was incredibly exciting. When Will Menmuir's first novel the many was long listed for the booker in 2016 again incredibly exciting um and part of that excitement is you know how exciting it is for Alison and for will and for the people around them and uh what a difference it's making to their careers and to their lives and that's 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 brilliant and i'm cheating i know because i'm saying a lot of different things in different parts of my no, that's fine life but I do have these different things going on the different hats that I wear um every time I think about stopping doing nightjar press I can't quite do it so I did stop for a year um actually that was partly because I didn't I only had one story forthcoming and I wanted to wait for a new story to do alongside it that was as good as that story that I had um but I've considered fold, folding Nightjar Press from time to time. And, but every time I do, I think, no, because I really, really love it. Every time I bring out two new stories, it, it, I get a real buzz from it. Um, and, uh, you know, I have a small number of very enthusiastic, regular customers. And it's, it's great that they continue to, to order and, and read these stories and, and the feedback that you get. It's really good. And uh, it's just something very exciting about publishing new stories, something that didn't exist before. Also, there's something particularly exciting about publishing stories on their own as individual um, artefacts that I really like. Sorry for cheating on that No, question. that's fine. The final question okay. then. So and this could be anything. It doesn't have to be a book. It can be yeah. TV. It can be a movie. It can yeah. be anything in yeah. your life. What What is inspiring you right now? What are you oh doing? You know, are you, what are you, what's exciting you right now? Not this minute, because obviously that's me talking to me. But you know, in in your this week, what's the thing that is? Do you mean in something that I might 
write about or um, that I'm someone else's creative work that I'm enjoying. Yeah, some, uh, yeah, anything that you're enjoying that's inspiring you that you're inspired by. Uh, Spiral, which is a French cop drama. Um, the French title is En Connage, but uh, it's been retitled Spiral. It's on BBC Four. And there's a new series. And when I saw that there was a new series coming on a few weeks ago, I was really, really excited because I love it. And I love it partly because it's just a really, really good uh, long-form detective drama, police drama, police rather than detective. Um, It's set in Paris, a city where I lived for a year when I was a student um, that I've written about and that I visit regularly and love uh, deeply. And um, last night I uh, re-watched a couple of recent... um, When I watch it, I try to not use the subtitles um, and just use the French. But my French is not good enough and they speak too fast. Um, But what I found is if I re-watch an episode and I know what's happening, I don't have to read the subtitles. I can concentrate more on the French. And that's good because... It's it's got a sort of practical help. I mean, I, I like to improve my French anyway, but it's got... So you watch it the first time with the subtitles, the second yeah. time without? I mean, I, they're still on there, oh, but, right. but I, I don't... I don't oh, you don't read them? Okay. Switch them off, I don't read them. Um, and that's helping me, because at the moment I'm in the middle of translating a French novel into English, and uh, I'm finding that a real challenge, but it's something I've wanted to do for many, many years, a particular book, um, and... Um, we haven't announced that yet, so I won't say what book it is. But um, but I'm really enjoying doing that, and 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 so I guess that's one reason why watching the new season of Spiral is well, no, that's just one reason why it's useful. <laughs> um, but it, it's just so good. I really, really love it. And just a final, final question. I've just remembered something we mentioned right at the start, um, which I said we'd come back to the yes. skull. Oh tell right! Tell me about the skull. We've got a yeah. It's what? How big is? That? Yeah, tell me what that is. It's a, well, there's it's a skull on top of one of the bookshelves. Yeah, what is a, it? There's a skull of a peccary, which is a type of pig. I think maybe a South American pig. And um, my youngest sister gave it to me. I think because she knew that I. Um, I'm interested in taxidermy and skulls and um, things like that and. Um, I don't know where she got it from. <laughs> She's she, never asked. I can't remember. <laughs> she also gave me an alligator skull, which I lent to somebody. Uh, <laughs> and she still got it. I think she was going to use it in a writing workshop, in a writing exercise. I think I used it in a writing exercise, actually. Yes, I did. Uh, at, uh, there's a writing centre in Scotland where I go every year. And... Um, I used the alligator skull there, and then I lent it to a writer friend, and uh, she's still got it. She has off. It's not like she's hanging on to it. She's offered it me back, but it's very big. And I don't really have room for it here. Most of the wall space in this flat is taken up with bookcases, <laughs> bookcases or paintings or film posters. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of, you know, there's not a lot of space for skulls. So the peccary skull stays, but the crocodile skull. The crocodile skull is, it's on loan. Oh, yeah. And it, in the way that artworks may be on loan from one museum to another, I'm perfectly happy. And I'm, in fact, a, a number of my possessions have that status. One of, I've got, you haven't seen them perhaps because they're in other rooms, but I've got a number of dummies around the flat. 
And there's one particular dummy that um, a, f- a friend has because at one point she needed a dummy. She needed. A Do you mean like in the shop window? I mean shop window dummies. Yeah. I mean tailors dummies, yeah. dressmakers dummies, ventriloquist dummies, all dummies of all kinds. Okay. I'm very interested in. Uh, and um, yeah, th- this friend needed a, I think a dressmaker's dummy of a particular size at a particular time several years ago, and I was. Uh, I don't know whether she asked me or whether she posted a, the request for one on social media. I can't remember, but I said, yes, you can have mine because I I was eager to offload stuff. Um, so I was in a flat even smaller than this one for a while. Um, and she's tried to give it me back and I've resisted. I've said, no, I, I quite like you keeping it. Um, so in a sense, it's still mine. I can still feel a certain degree of ownership over it, but it's on loan and somebody else is giving it space, and uh, that's good. So that's the case with that dummy and the alligator skull, and obviously a number of books, because whenever you loan a book to someone, lend a book to someone, you forget to whom you've lent it, Yes, and you never get it back. That's so things, books will remain on permanent loan to other places. Uh, and that's occasionally a source of frustration when you realise you want a particular book and you can't remember who you get. So I do now keep a, a list. But in fact, I always forget to... Where does the list reside? On on my computer. Not in the notebook? In no, the notebook. Not, no, not in the notebook. Because I'd have to then start it again every time I started a new notebook. Have you ever called in a book yet? I might have done. And there, only a couple of nights ago, I was thinking there's a particular book I, I want. And if I could, I would call it in, but I don't know who's got it. And you didn't have it on the list? No. Because although I say I keep a list, in fact, I never add anything to the list. There's one item on it, I think. And it, does that constitute a list? Good point. It probably doesn't. I don't know if it has a bullet point or if it has a number one. That there's an implied list there, isn't there? There is. There is. Well, you'll have to build that list yeah. over the coming yeah. years. I like lists, as you probably won't be surprised to know. We'll keep building that one. Yeah. Nick Royal, thank you. Thank you. <laughs>